A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Almighty Father, uh... We've just said in that creed a, a, a number of remarkably big claims. Um, and what we ask is that you will come and make yourself plain, that you will come and uh, make the content of that creed, um, those big claims that we say, Will you come and give us a taste of the reality to which they point? Namely, give us yourself. Come and make yourself clear. Make Jesus clear. Make the Holy Spirit clear. Um, give us yourself so that we can taste and see that you are good. Um, overcome the obstacles that get in the way. And bring us to a place where we see you so clearly and we are so compelled by you that we want to surrender our lives to you. That takes a miracle, so please do the miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. And uh, please turn back to the gospel reading. Um, we're going to camp out in the gospel reading and, and, uh, and read it within a, a larger context of Peter's life. Um, w this is a remarkable reading, both the gospel reading and actually the epistle, which is on the, uh, the, um, the page before. It's re they're remarkable for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that makes them both remarkable is that they are both describing a profoundly countercultural Count, no, rather, a counterintuitive culture that Jesus wants to see within his church. When we say the church, we mean the community of people who want to be followers of Jesus. In both of these readings, they're describing a profoundly counterintuitive culture. What do I mean by culture? So we all know what culture is, right? Uh, every nation, every organization, every family have certain ways of doing things. We have certain stories that we tell. We have certain habits that we uh, all do together, often without even thinking about it. And these habits and these stories that we tell and these ways of relating to each other shape us not only individually, but as groups and shape what it is that we prefer, 
what it is that we pursue, not just individually, but all together, culture, right? It can include language, but it can also include internal culture within organizations or smaller groups of people. Well, churches have cultures, right? And one of the things that's really important to be able to do is from time to time, uh, a church like ours, especially this time of year, we need to ask the question, what is the nature of our culture? Uh, it, do we have a good culture? Do we have a bad culture? Do we have a healthy culture? Do we have a toxic culture? What, what kind of culture do we have? Now, we're not going to ask so much the question, uh, the evaluative question about us as a congregation today. But what we are going to do is try to listen to Jesus, particularly in the gospel reading, because Jesus is describing this profoundly counterintuitive culture that he wants to see amongst his disciples. And I'm going to frame it, I'm going to describe it as uh, Jesus wants us to be a culture of the cross, a people of the cross. In the epistle reading, uh, Paul says, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's making the same point that Jesus is making. But look at the words that Jesus uses in verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus says this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is saying in one line, three things, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Those are three ways of describing the culture of the cross that he wants to uh, characterize his people. Now, let me try to explain what this means. Go to the story. And I, in order to explain it, I need to back up and give some uh, context from the portion just before this excerpt. So right before this, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it's a kind of massive reveal moment in the story of Jesus uh, and his ministry. So what happens is Jesus is with his disciples, and he's saying, hey, what do, what do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some people say this, some people say that, you know. But then Jesus says, bah, but who do you say that I am? And right at that moment, Peter, who's uh, like a really keen, eager disciple, you know, raises his hand and is straining like this. I Actually, I bet you he did not raise his hand. I think he just blurted it out. He says, I know, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And now, if you grew up in church, if you've been around church for a little bit, hearing Peter say that just sounds super conventional. Like, of course, Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that his last name? Um, it's not. Um, but everybody knows, but generally speaking, uh, most people know that that's the right answer, even if you don't know what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. But in the context, that was a jaw-dropping statement. The reason is, Peter's saying, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. If Jesus is the Messiah and the son of the living God, then what it means is that Jesus is not just a moral teacher, and he's not just a rabbi. Uh, what he is, is he is a God's personal intervention to set this broken world right. It's a jaw-dropping moment. And Peter gets all kinds of, you know, kudos for being uh, the first to see it, the first to say it. But then everything goes sideways for Peter because Jesus, maddeningly for Peter, starts talking about death. Uh, if you look at verse 21, I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus says, okay, everybody knows that I'm the Messiah. 
let me tell you the plan. And I can just imagine all the disciples leaning in going, yes, what's the plan? And he goes, ready? You ready for the plan? Um, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And everybody looks at each other going, oh, yeah, I thought it was going to start in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says, and there at Jerusalem, I am going to be the victim of state-sponsored religious violence. And I'm going to die. They're going to be successful. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to undie. And, I, you know, I, you can just imagine the disciples, like, looking at Jesus and then looking at each other and going, I heard the words, but none of it makes sense. Like, I don't know what any of it means. And right then, Peter, because he's Peter, he says, ah, Jesus, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Come here. Let, me, let me take you aside. Um, listen, Jesus, Jesus um, uh, it's time for me to lead just a little bit. Um, everybody's excited about you being the Messiah, Jesus, says Peter. Um, but, but we got to get you back on message, because here's the deal. We've done some polling, and um, uh, Messiah's with a death wish. No one wants that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, messiahs that open up a can of victory on the Romans, that really gets people excited. And it gets me excited. And Jesus, you're a winner. I like winners. Everybody likes winners. Let's get you back on message and let's go kick Caesar's teeth in. And then look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 23. And you got to feel the bite of this. Sam read it really, really well. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, feel the bite there. Did you realize that Jesus calls St. Peter Satan? Why? Why is Jesus so harsh? Well, Keep thinking about Peter for a second, but in your mind, go forward in Peter's timeline. It might be a year, it might be a few months, we're not exactly sure. But uh, 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 sometime after this, it all starts to happen just as Jesus says. They go to Jerusalem, and then it just starts, everything from Peter's perspective begins to fall apart. Uh, Jesus gets arrested, and then eventually Jesus goes to his death. But as it gets closer to Jesus' death, Peter starts acting erratically. Do you remember this? At one moment, Peter is violent. And the next minute, Peter's a coward. So at, at one moment, uh, uh, Jesus is about ready to get arrested. The people, the guards come to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls a sword and goes for a guy's head. He misses. He gets an ear. You know, wasn't operating in his area of expertise. He was a fisherman. But in that moment, Peter's violent. But then a couple hours later, after Jesus has been arrested and it seems the game is up, some uh, this young woman comes to Peter and says, hey, didn't you know that guy, the guy that's going to get killed? And Peter responds, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. And he does that three times. Now, what's going on there? Because at one moment, he's violent. The next moment, He's a coward. Well, there's a clue about what's going on. If you look at our reading and look at verse 25, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Let me use different words. Whoever prefers self above all will lose it all in the end. 
go back to Peter and j just imagine that you could look into Peter's heart for a second and imagine that you could find the part of Peter in his soul where Peter keeps the thing that he prefers above everything else. If somehow you could peer into Peter's heart and find that, what you would discover is that Peter prefers Peter over everything. Now, you might say, um, well, isn't that normal? Don't, don't we all kind of prefer ourselves over things? It, and if you do think that that's normal, I, th I agree with you. It is normal. However, I think we need to appreciate how corrosive the centered self can be. Um, this is from a, uh, a, a British philosopher and, and rabbi, actually, um, a guy called Jonathan Sachs, and he says this. He says, the primary, he's talking about Western society, he says this, the primary reality in our world, in our society, has become the I, as in the me, the atomic self. The market is about choosing I. The liberal democratic state is about the voting I. The economy is about the consuming I. But I, like Adam long ago, is lonely. I is bad at relationships. In a world of I's, marriages do not last, communities erode, loyalty is devalued, and trust grows thin. Trust grows thin. Relationships begin to fall apart. I mean, I don't have to go into it. You can recognize that dynamic, can't you? It's the air that we breathe. Um, but the centered self is also profoundly corrosive. It disintegrates individuals and communities. According to Jesus, if you try to save the self, you'll lose it all in the end. And this explains why Peter is so repulsed by the cross when Jesus talks about death or when he, especially when he gets close to Jesus actually dying, Peter just gets really erratic because he knows that Jesus dying is going to counteract all of his self-interest. And it gives us an insight here because up until this point, Peter had followed Jesus largely because Peter thought Jesus was helpful to Peter pursuing Peter's plan in Peter's life. It's very easy, Emmanuel, to use Jesus as an attempt to pursue our own agendas. And we often do it without knowing it. And so when Peter sees Jesus going to his death, Peter just freaks out because his soul is desperate to preserve himself. And so one moment he's violent, the next moment he's cowardly, but the thing that he always is is centered upon the self. Now, can you see how this plays out in our lives? Um, sometimes we're tempted in the world around us to protect the self by blending in to everybody around us. We all do, we've all done this, haven't we? Uh, we accommodate ourselves, perhaps morally, uh, to uh, our friends' views or our friends' behaviors, um, perhaps not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the easiest path and it's an expression of uh, the protective centered self. Or at other times, uh, instead of accommodating, um, the centered self expresses it as anger and hostility and 
bitterness. And we try to protect ourselves by raging against our opponents, our cultural opponents, perhaps. And both are differing symptoms of the same root. And both of them have been widely normalized in our world, but both of them are corrosive. And you can begin to see how verse 25 is true. Whoever will save his life will lose it all in the end. And Peter found that out. So um, while Peter was denying Jesus uh, during Jesus' arrest, there's this moment where Peter and Jesus lock eyes with each other. And it's just a brutal moment. Because in a flash, as soon as Peter sees Jesus' eyes, all of a sudden Peter realizes that in saving himself, he's forfeited something far more valuable. He realizes, verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? And now this is, this is where it gets really heavy. Everybody take a deep breath. If it's not heavy yet, here it comes. Um, verse 27, just take a look at it. Uh, for the Son of Man, this is Jesus, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Now, Jesus' point is that one day there's going to be a reckoning. Uh, uh, one day, Jesus is going to hold us each individually accountable for the uh, sin that our self-centeredness has caused. Uh, and one, it, and uh, holding us accountable, that, that's actually part of the goodness of God, because uh, it's, it's a way of um, God showing us that he's not going to allow good, evil to go on for forever, and, and so he's going to hold us to account. And on that day, if we reject Jesus, Jesus will give us what we prefer. And if we preferred self, then we will end up having only ourselves for all eternity. And in that context, the corrosion we've witnessed and experienced in this world will be the first taste of an eternal deterioration. If we save the self, we'll lose it all. I know that's really heavy, but it's part of why it's so urgent that we as a church become a culture that, uh, that seeks to decenter the self and follow Jesus instead. Deny yourself, follow Jesus. But the question is, how do we do that? Because if you've ever tried, it's hard. One of the reasons why the centered self is so absolutely default and normal is that to decenter the self is almost impossible. What could possibly decenter the self? Well, look at verse 21. Uh, do you notice how Jesus talks about how he must go to the cross? Why? Why is it so important that Jesus die and rise again? Because if he doesn't die, he could have had more time to teach. We could have had much longer Gospels. We could have had more content. Um, but apparently, Jesus thought that his death was more urgent than adding content to his teaching. Why? And the answer is that only the cross of Christ is powerful to decenter the self and replace it with Jesus. Do you remember how uh, we were saying that the centered self corrodes? It, it decomposes. It pulls people apart. Well, the opposite of the centered of, of self-centeredness is sacrificial love, and sacrificial love has the capacity to restore what the centered self corrodes, and that is 
infinitely true of the cross of Christ. And that's at least for three reasons. The cross of Christ is a prototype we can trust. It's a rescue that we receive, and it's a catalyst of our transformation. Let me just run through these real quick. So um, the cross is a prototype that we can trust. Um, one of the huge obstacles when we talk about this kind of a thing is if, if somebody says, I need to decenter the self, I need to deny myself, oh my goodness, that's crazy. And the reason is crazy, I can hear somebody saying, is that that's just psychological self-sabotage. I can imagine somebody saying, all my life I've been trying to find myself, and if you say I need to deny myself, then there will be no self left. I will be nothing more than living a half-life. How could you possibly say? that I should deny the self, right? Can you hear it? Can you feel it? Well, Jesus addresses this in verse 25. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the point is that if we lose our lives for Jesus, very specifically for Jesus, then you'll end up counterintuitively more alive than you ever imagined. And I can imagine somebody saying, uh, that's, how do I know that that, how could that possibly be true? How could I believe that that's true? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is our prototype. He's our pioneer. Jesus, like a good leader, never asks us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. Jesus himself gave himself up for the sake of God, his Father. And he decentered the self to the point of dying upon the cross. And you can't decenter the self more than that. You can't deny the self more than that. And therefore, you can watch how did it turn out for him. And the remarkable thing, of course, is that three days later after his death, he rose again. And it ended up that Jesus was never more alive, more flourishing than after his death and his resurrection. And Jesus promises that if we will follow him and give up our lives for him, that his path to, to true life will become our story. And so the only reason you should give up your life for Jesus is by watching how he gave up his life for his father and following him and trusting him. And as you do that, you'll discover that the cross is also a rescue that we receive. Um, remember how we were saying that um, all of us are going to have to face a reckoning in the end. And part of God's goodness is that, I was just, we were just saying that God judges evil and sin. Well, on the cross, Jesus experienced the reckoning that our sin deserves. And Jesus, his death, reckons for that sin so that we can be rescue, rescued from it. So that the cross is a prototype that we can trust and a rescue that we receive. And therefore, thirdly, it's a catalyst of our transformation. Go, in your mind, go back to Peter. So after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter and Jesus meet up again. And once again, their eyes lock on each other. Except now, Peter, having denied Jesus and having seen Jesus and denied him basically to his face, these few days later, Peter's eyes dart away in shame from Jesus because what Peter's expecting, he's expecting to receive the reckoning that he deserves. But he receives what he does not expect. From Jesus, he receives not a reckoning, but a restoration. Jesus, by a, a fire on the side of the Sea of Galilee, restores Peter, forgives Peter. And in that moment, sacrificial love from the cross 
collided with Peter's soul and created a kind of spiritual fusion, a, an enormous release of spiritual energy. So that Peter's self, for the first time, being uh, receiving Christ's sacrificial love was unseated and dethroned and decentered, and all of a sudden Jesus Christ took the place that Peter had previously occupied. And what that means for us is this: we will never give, we will never uh, take up our cross and follow Jesus until we see Jesus taking up His cross for us. And that brings us back to church culture. Uh, what, is Je what does Jesus want his people to be about? He wants to replicate among us what he did in Peter. And he wants us to be allies with each other in helping each of us internalize the cross more deeply. And this is one of the wonderful ways that we get to have a positive impact on the world. Don't you want to have a positive impact on the world? Uh, I hope you do. Um, if I center the self, I'll end up uh, contributing to the corrosion of the world, and there's plenty of that. But if, on the other hand, myself is decentered by the cross of Christ and Jesus becomes the center, then I can be part of, I can become an instrument of Jesus in restoring much that is broken because as the cross becomes the center, my cowardice will be replaced by courage. And the anger and hostility in my life will be replaced by a willingness to serve even those who are my cultural opponents. And again, you can see that in Peter. Remember how frightened Peter was of the people that were uh, arresting Jesus and arranging his death. Well, guess what? A little over a month later, Peter spoke to those very same people, some of the very same people that Peter had been so frightened of, some of the very same people that had arranged Jesus' death. Peter gets to speak to them again, and you know what happens this time? He's not a coward. He's full of courage, and he gets to tell them about that the person that they had arranged his death had been raised from the dead and is the Lord of all, but had arranged their adoption, and those opponents, those people that had so frightened Peter became founding members of the first church. A little bit later on, G, uh, Peter, Jesus sends Peter uh, to a Roman soldier. Remember how hostile, violent Peter was to the guard that helped arrest Jesus? Well, later on, Jesus sends him to a Roman centurion called Cornelius. And once again, Peter talks to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, about Jesus. And the Roman centurion, Cornelius, becomes, surrenders his life, denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Jesus. And all of a sudden, you see this reconciliation being spread out through the life of Peter. The former coward and the former violent man has now become an instrument of God's restoration. Don't you want to be part of that? And that's what God wants to do here. He wants to make us allies of each other because nobody can do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. Peter couldn't do it on his own. Uh, a few years later, after all of this, when Peter had doing, been doing really well for a while, he started falling off. He, he started making some serious mistakes. In particular, he started uh, segregating himself away from the Gentiles and only eating with the Jewish portion of the church. And what he needed is an ally, somebody in the church that could come and say, hey, Peter, you're wrong. You need to come back and internalize the cross yet more, yet more deeply. And that person was Paul. 
Paul, the apostle, you can read about in the book of Galatians, comes along Peter and becomes an ally, helping him internalize the cross more deeply so that once again the corrosion can be re restrained and the restoration of Jesus' grace can spread out to more and more people in the midst of a broken world because Jesus is the Messiah and he's not just a rabbi. And Emmanuel, that's what Jesus wants to call us to. He wants to call every single one of us to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, because that is the counterintuitive, happy path to true living. And he wants to call all of us to help each other do that so that we can be an aroma of Jesus's grace in the midst of this city. Amen? Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.